Good morning. It is a delight to be with you this morning. We're very thankful for your presence. Always our joy and privilege to be together and to give God the glory he is due. For the next couple of weeks, starting this morning and into tonight, we're going to be looking at some practical things regarding our anger and our fighting one with another and how we should do that properly, biblically. It's important to note that becoming a Christian doesn't stop you from being a human being. And the Bible is very clear to not put us in the position of seeming superhuman or not experiencing the same things that every other person experiences. You, you have to love Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he says, we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. When we lose somebody, he doesn't say we don't sorrow. He says we don't sorrow as others with no hope, and that's the difference. And it's like that throughout the Bible. To that end, Christians get angry. We do. And this material originally was with the idea of counseling couples in marriages, and so they could use it, but it's beyond that. It's really every relationship that we have where people disagree and have anger one toward another. It happens. Uh, it's not exactly a problem, really. The problem is what we do when we're angry, how we behave. That can become an issue. We read in the New Testament where Paul and Barnabas, in the midst of contemplating a missionary journey, how much more spiritual can you get than the two evangelists, two people going out saying, let's go preach the gospel. And in the middle of that, they have a sharp contention a disagreement so strong that effectively they say we can't work together. In doing what? The saving souls. We can't do it together because they disagreed. It happens. Two sisters in Philippi, Paul warns, chapter 4, he says, I beseech you, Iodia and Syntyche, to effectively get along. Stop arguing. Stop fighting. The brethren in Corinth must have really been angry at each other. They were taking one another to court for the smallest matters. It happens. How do we behave in it? What do we do about it? To whom would we look? Well, like all things, we should look for Jesus. We should see his example, and we should follow him. Jesus was a human. The Bible is very clear to tell us that. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4. He was made in all points as his brethren, Hebrews 2, 17. He is one of us, and as a result of that, Jesus had disagreements. I'm not saying he started them or instigated them or anything like that, but as you read the gospel accounts, he disagreed with people and the things that they did and they said. In chapter 22 of Matthew, there are the Herodians, there are the Sadducees, and there are the Pharisees all disagreeing with Jesus seemingly in a moment of time, one right after the other. In John chapter 8, the disagreement, if we call it that, it got so contentious that at some point they referred to Jesus as having been born of fornication, and Jesus referred to them as being children of the devil. Jesus had disagreements. Jesus was also angry. The Bible tells us that very matter-of-factly in Mark chapter 3 and verse number 5, as he was about to heal a man, the Bible says he looked upon them with anger. Now, it adds that it was because of the hardness of their hearts, but our Lord experienced anger too. And Christ is our teacher, our example, our goal. And so, even when we're angry, we are to behave like Jesus. We should caution, or at the very least say a word of caution about anger in general. 
you might want to ask yourself, why are you angry? You might want to ask yourself, are you easily angered? And you might want to be aware of what at least one person said, and that is that anger is one letter shy of danger. And so you'll want to be careful with your anger. There are horror stories associated with people being angry. You've, you've heard no doubt of the many instances of road rage. You've heard no doubt of what happens in moments of anger and how people's lives are changed for the rest of their lives. Very often, one person lashes out and harms or kills another person. That person is arrested and put in jail for life, and two lives are effectively taken. Why? A moment of anger. You'll want to be careful with your anger just in a general sense. If you have your Bibles this morning, notice that the Bible addresses it. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and verse 27. As you're turning to the book of Ephesians, it's noteworthy as you get there that the book breaks down, not exactly, but largely into two good sections of three chapters each. But it's actually a little further, but that's neither here nor there. Let's use the generic two sides. And, and so the first side, chapters 1, 2, and 3, talk about the things that God has done to bring the church into existence. What God has done, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, largely, Paul talks about now how are we to behave in light of being the church that God has brought into being. And so you often hear people talk about Paul's writing as doctrinal and practical. And that's usually the way he writes, and that's true, and it's not always broken down so neatly as it is here. But here there's a nice division. In chapter 4, we're on the practical side. And if you were to go back just a little bit, about verse 17 down to verse 23, in that section he talks about a changed mind and a new man. And as a result of that, that new man lives a different life. Now, we could pick any number of the things that he talks about. He talks about telling the truth. He talks about working so that we can give and not stealing. And right in the midst of this, he talks about anger. It's in verse 26. Paul says, be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Three noteworthy things with regards to what Paul says here. Number one, he says, be angry and sin not. You see, Christians do get angry. That's not the problem. The problem would be the second half of the phrase, and sin not. And Christians are not supposed to do that. Be angry, yes, but don't sin. That's number one. Number two, take care of it quickly. The next phrase says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Take care of it quickly. Why? What will happen if you don't? The last phrase, do not give the devil an opportunity. What happens if you don't take care of it? It grows. It gets bigger. It gets worse. Your mind starts to work on you, and you start telling yourself how right you are and how wrong they are. And pretty soon you tell yourself, and they know it too. And now that makes them evil and wicked because they intend to do it, and they know it. And now I wake up the next morning and I'm more upset. If I were talking to couples in marriage, I would say that when you go to bed at night, if you don't take care of it, you will sleep on the sides of the bed, and there will be an ocean of sheet between you, and it will be a very cold ocean <laughs> right in the middle of two islands. 
That's what it means when you don't take care of it at night. You almost are on the floor. You're so far on the edge, and you're hoping not to be touched, not even the foot. Do not let your foot cross the line. You might even chop the covers to make sure. Instead, take care of it. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And so, this morning and this evening and next week the same, we'll talk about some tips, some things you should and should not do when you're angry and when you're fighting. Number one, if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 5. Number one, don't get historical. I know, it sounded like the couple that went to see a counselor and the wife said, every time we fight, my husband gets historical. And she said, the counselor said, oh, you mean hysterical? She said, no, he gets historical. He brings up everything from the past. Don't do that. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 5, in the midst of talking about love, which begins here in earnest in verse number 4, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. You'll note with regards to anger, it's not easily provoked, but the end of the phrase does not take into account a wrong. I think the King James says, thinketh no evil. And you might try with that reference to have in your mind, well, I'll just never think an evil thought, but that's not really what he means here. What he means is you don't keep a tally. You don't have a ledger. You, you, you don't hold back things from the past and write them down and, and keep a journal of past wrongs. You don't do that. Love doesn't keep a list. Love lets the past be in the past. Now, as soon as I say that, somebody listening who is guilty usually argues with, that's what I've been saying all along. That's what I've been saying. But you did it yesterday. You just did it. And so the person says, well, this just happened yesterday. And then you say, well, the past is the past. You heard, Brother Eric. Don't get historical. Let the past be the past. So let me quickly say, sometimes you may need a reference from the past in the present, you may, especially the recent past, you may need to make up examples from the past to try to offer some level of clarity. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using the past as a weapon in the present, weaponizing somebody's past infractions by saying phrases like, you always do this. You'll never change. You've been doing this since. I remember when, and I'll never forget. Or you might say, you will never live this down. This is what the Bible would prevent us from doing when we're angry and when we're fighting. Keeping a list to use later on somebody is never good. It's not loving. And not allowing someone to move beyond their past without reference to it every time something happens is not good for you or for them. Here's the key takeaway. We can't get past past injuries if they're used as present weapons. If every time they're weaponized in the present, we'll never get past them. They're always a convenient list away. We cannot do that when we fight. Number two, James chapter 1 and verse number 19. James chapter 1 and verse number 19, the point would be this, secondly, listen well and then talk. Listen well and then talk. Someone said, listen with your heart and then talk. God gave us two ears, that's what I was told. 
and one mouth. Therefore, you should listen twice as much as you talk. That's what somebody told me. James says it this way, Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every one of you be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You'll notice the way James says it, swift, fast to do something, and then slow to do two other things. And so he says, be swift to do what? To hear. But be slow to talk, and be slow to anger. Now, friends, if you reverse these things, it becomes very badly. It becomes very bad if you're swift to anger, if you're swift to talk, and if you're slow to listen. No, it's just the opposite. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath or anger. It is hard to listen well when you're talking. And this is what happens very often in arguments and fights. Both people talk. And usually the person who talks the loudest wins. They can talk the loudest and they can talk the longest and they can shout down the other person. It's hard to listen well when you're talking. It's also hard to listen accurately when you're talking. One of the things that happens in fights is both people are trying to present their case, but it's hard to adjudicate a case when you didn't hear it. You didn't hear the material facts. And why couldn't you hear them? You were talking. That's not listening. No, you want to listen well and then talk when your anger is happening and when you're in the midst of a fight. Typically, we're just better at talking than listening. At the very least, we're faster at talking than listening. It's not listening if you're playing double dutch waiting to speak. That's not good listening. If all you're doing is waiting for the last word to sound like it's about to end, and you have, while they were talking, built your case, that's all you were doing. You heard something, and you've been building your case all along. And now, as soon as they act like they might want to take a breath, you're in. <laughs> that's not good listening. No, listening is not the same as hearing. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, when our Lord is nearing the end of his first address to humanity, it is fascinating to even think about the fact that Christ is God in the flesh and God is talking and teaching men, and there were people in the audience listening to God teach. And in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, God has been teaching. What a day to be there. And one of the things he says is he nears the end of his, his address, near the end of his sermon. In verse 24, here's what he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. And sometimes people say, well, I heard you. I wasn't listening. I heard the audible sounds. Maybe you've done it. Maybe it's been done to you. You ever seen a person, their focus and attention is over here, and then they hear you talking over here, and they're trying to do both? I don't know. Maybe it's a sporting event, and somebody's talking over here. I don't know who that would be or how this would set up. I'm just saying maybe. And as this person is watching and this person is talking, this person is going, And at some point, they get asked, did you hear me? Sometimes they'll try to throw you a sentence that has nothing to do with anything. Did you know there's purple elephants in the garage? Yeah. <laughs> That's not listening. No, listening takes focus. It takes attention. 
It takes presence. It takes effort. It takes intention. And usually, for best results, it takes silence on the part of the listener. Jesus is not simply saying in verse 24, those who heard me. Notice that he connects the very next phrase. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. That's the idea of listening. The hearing goes down into the ears and the understanding of the heart and mind. It's to hear, to listen, to hearken. And so without the doing and the focus and the effort and the attention, well, it wasn't really heard. A good key here, someone gave this good tip with regards to speaking and talking, and they said, before you speak, recite back what you heard. So I heard you say, and then tell them what you heard. And that'll give them an opportunity to say, yes, that's what I said, or no, that's not at all what I said. So that you can respond to the thing that was said instead of what you heard for lack of attention and focus and presence. Number three, don't be hypocritical. You know, very often in fights, that's what ends up happening. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1, people come to this passage and they misunderstand the passage and they think our Lord is condemning all judging. And they say things like, well, you can't judge me. Nobody can judge anybody. You can't tell me. Who are you to tell me? And maybe in some context, it's true, as we'll talk a little later. It's true. You shouldn't be telling that person in some context. But our Lord is not condemning judging out of hand. In fact, our Lord is enjoining judging. He actually demands that we judge in the very same passage. But he is condemning hypocrisy. Begin reading there in verse number 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard, you shall be, it shall be measured, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? What's he condemning? Verse number 5 opens with the words, you hypocrite. What's the problem? The problem is not judging. The problem is you are in a position where you're not qualified to judge. Why? Because you have a log in your eye trying to remove a speck from your brother's eye. But does our Lord say, and therefore you can't judge? No, that's not at all what he says. In fact, notice what he says next. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then there is a first, and then there is a and, then. What's the first? Get the log out of your eye. Don't be a hypocrite. What's the second? And then, once the log is removed, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Question, does the Lord want the speck removed? Yes. By who? Somebody who can see it. You can't see the speck for the log. But if you get the log out, then get the speck out. He's not saying if you got a speck, you're better off than the log, and therefore everything's good with you. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus doesn't want you walking around with specks in your eye. 
He just wants somebody to remove it who can because they got the log out of theirs. He's condemning hypocrisy. Well, what about hypocrisy? Hypocrites will say and do not. Here's what happens in arguments and fights. Sometimes somebody is making an accusation, accusing somebody of doing something, and they don't do the very thing they're holding the other person to. They say and then do not. Hypocrites say one thing and do another thing. Hypocrites condemn in others and then give grace to themselves. That's what hypocrites do. Don't be hypocritical when you're angry and in fights. Matthew chapter 23, our Lord condemns hypocrisy. In fact, you talk about some language and stern warnings. They're here in Matthew chapter 23. It's noteworthy that Matthew chapter 23 is not Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord has been working with these individuals for some time, and He has been pleading with them and talking to them and addressing them and asking their questions and trying to move them forward. And we finally get toward the end of His ministry, end of His life, and He, with one more effort, tries to turn them around. Still, that's His aim, by pointing out their hypocrisy. What does He say about them? In Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 4, Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's the first thing about hypocrisy, is the hypocrite is always exempt from the rules that he or she makes. It's hypocrisy 101. I make the rules, you follow them. I don't have to. Maybe you've heard those people say, don't do as I do, do as I say. Now, I'll tell you, but don't you worry about me. I'll do something different, but I want you to do this. That's hypocrisy. They say and do not. Now, let me say this very quickly. If you have a person like that in your life, every now and again, that person will give good information. If it's good information, take the good information. If it's useful information, take the useful information. Don't allow good information to be lost because a hypocrite gave it. That's verses 1 to 4. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, all that they bid you observe and do, because they sit in the seat of authority. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do. But don't do after their works, for they say and do not. Sometimes people miss out on good information because the person who told them was a hypocrite. But hypocrisy, number one, they're always exempt from the rules. Number two, hypocrites say uh, their intention is always to look good in front of other people. They never really want people to know who they genuinely are. They have this persona where they have to be viewed well by the public, but in private they can act like the children of the devil. But they never want you to know that part, though. That's the Pharisees. Look at verse 5, Matthew chapter 23. He says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by men. They love the appearance of righteousness. They love it. They want everybody to think well of them. That's hypocrisy. But inside, if you were to continue to read this chapter, Jesus will say of these individuals, they rob widows' houses, and then for pretense, public show, they make a long prayer. They look good. They're whited sepulchers. You're walking through a cemetery. You look at a whitewashed sepulcher. It looks great. Wow, look at that. But inside, full of dead men's bones. That's them. Here's the key takeaway here. 
Don't condemn in others what you allow in yourself. That brings us to number four. Don't be hypercritical. Hypocrites are often hypercritical. What do you mean by that? Well, they're the kind of people where nothing is ever right. I mean, it looks all right to everybody else, but not them. It always needs a tweak, a turn, a twist. It always needs to be made better. We just cleaned it. Yeah, but it could be more clean. We just got it. Yeah, but we could do this. It looks great. No, we could do Never is anything right. Something's always out of place. Something's always amiss. Something's always wrong. Now, those people might counter with, but it's true. They might counter with that. And let's say that they're right on occasion. Let's say they're right, but does it have to be every single time about every single thing? We're not talking about an occasional random effort where somebody does something. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about disposition of heart and life and mind. And generally, the people who know us know us. And we tend to snowball ourselves. But people generally know us who know us. They judge often and often in their minds. They judge. They wouldn't want it to be done to them. That's the interesting fact about it. In Matthew chapter 7, verse number 12, Jesus says, and whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, this might be the litmus test for all relationships and for all things. How do you know if you're going wrong? Do you want it done to you? That's the question. Well, what do I want what done to me? The exact same thing you're doing. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12, and whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What does that verse actually look like? It looks like this. If you were asked by the Lord, tell me, how do you want to be treated? Let's say he asked me that, Eric, how do you want people to treat you? And I said, Lord, I want mercy and grace and kindness and love and compassion and understanding and sympathy and, 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 and goodness, and, and I want people to understand and to be considerate, and I want people to care about me. Jesus would take my list and say, great and great list. Now, take this and go do it. To others with no guarantee it'll be done to you that's what Matthew 7 12 teaches the verse emphasizes you not others it asks the question whatsoever you would whatever you would that men should do to you got it write it down how do you want to be treated? The rest of the verse says, go do that to other people. Here's what we can all agree on. Nobody wants hypocrisy. Here's what we all could agree on. Nobody would want hypercriticalness on their list. Here's what we all could agree on. Nobody would want, I want anger and frustration. And me. Nobody would write that on their list. I can guarantee you this, though, our list would have a lot of the same things on them. And the verse says, now, go do that to others. Sometimes, though, people always feel justified in their critical judgments, and they say things like, well, I'm right, and I just tell people the way it is, and uh, I, I just call it like I see it. 
And that's just what it is. And here's the key takeaway. Having an opinion does not obligate you to share your opinion. And someone has well said, giving your opinion without it being requested is criticism. You have your Bibles. Look at Romans chapter 14. It is the case that God knew that we would disagree. That is the case. It is also the case that God knew we would have strong opinions about matters relating to him. And it's also the case that God seeks to protect us from each other and our opinions on these matters of judgment. In the first five verses of Romans chapter 14, this issue is addressed. And the instruction from inspiration is, now accept the one who is weak in faith. And while this is not a discussion of, of Romans, it's noteworthy that when you read the word weak, don't assume and think less than sophomoric and an infantile. That's not the word here. Oh, the word is simply the idea that somebody has something in their mind that they are convinced, if I did that, I would sin. I, I'm, I'm weak to that thing, and if I did that, I would go wrong. And somebody else is strong in that thing. They say, oh, no, I could do that with no problem. That's the difference here. That's the weak and the strong. Now, Paul says then, when it comes to these situations, accept the one who is weak in faith. For what reason? He says, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Do what to him? Accept him. To what end? Not to pass judgments on his opinions. And then Paul illustrates in verse number 2 and verse number 3 and verse number 4. Paul says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Contextually, if you were to put that in the first century, there are Jews who are members of the body, and there were animals that were unclean throughout their history, and now they're in the body and they say, no, I don't eat those things. I don't, I don't eat vegetables. I don't eat those unclean meats. I don't eat that at all. I don't even mess with that. Here is a person who has never been in any restrictions in their diet, and they eat everything. And now the Jews and the Gentiles are reconciled in one body. Now they're having these conversations, and what they're told is, accept one. Okay, this person thinks they would be wrong if they ate the meat. Leave them alone. Let them not eat the meat. Enjoy your vegetables. This person eats everything. Enjoy that. For further discussion, you'll want to read 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. But here Paul says, let it be. In fact, he says in verse number 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Why? God has accepted him. You know who God accepted? Both parties. The one who does not eat does not eat to God. The one who eat gives thanks to God for what he's eating. God's accepted both. Verse number four, ask a question. We would all do well to answer it. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Well, who is the one who is being served? God is. The person is God's servant. Who are you to judge him? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
What are we saying? Verse number five explains. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully persuaded where? In his own mind. We are not good seemingly at letting people do that. Now, you and I should make note, we're not talking about doctrine. You and I can't be persuaded in our own mind. The faith has been once for all revealed, Jude 3. We don't have a say in what God has revealed by way of doctrine. If God said it, that settles it, and you and I need to obey it, period. There's not an option on that, which clearly indicates we're not talking about that because verse 5 says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In what? Matters of judgment. In matters of opinion, what can you do? Be fully persuaded in your own mind. What should I do? Keep mine to myself and be fully persuaded in my own mind. And when we get together, what shouldn't we do? I shouldn't receive you to discuss it. But we do. So free with our opinions. So free with how quickly I think you should. Who asked you? So free with, so free with, it's a violation of Scripture. How do you know? Verse 22, the Bible says, hast thou faith? Contextually, this faith, this personal scruple and conviction, do you have one? Yes, I got one. What should you do with it? Have it to yourself and to God. The rest of that verse says, happy is he who does not condemn himself. And what he approves, what does he mean? I have a conviction that I should not eat the meat. You know what I should do? Not eat the meat. I will be happy if I don't go against my own conscience. I will work in harmony with my conscience if I don't condemn myself. But if I think it's wrong, I shouldn't do it. If I think it's right, by all means, no matter of these convictions. But what shouldn't I do? I shouldn't receive you to have doubtful disputations. I shouldn't argue with you. What do we do? The moment we share, Eric, what do you think about? I just keep that to myself. Well, Eric, what do you think about Christmas? I just keep that to myself. What do you think about Halloween? I just keep that to myself. What do you think about eating meat? I just keep, nope, I just keep that to myself. <laughs> I try to, and then everybody comes to me and says, I heard you were. What happens when we share? You know exactly what happens. The moment I tell you my opinion and yours differs, we get into a discussion about why my opinion is wrong and why yours is right. And guess what I spend my time doing? Trying to convince you that your opinion is wrong and mine is right. Let me ask you this. Do all of these end well? Do all of these end peacefully? Do all of these end with us hugging it out and saying, I love you too? Or do sometimes they go the way of Facebook? And I, guess what? And, or do sometimes they go the way of gossip? And did you know? Did you, or do sometimes they go the way to mean speech and harsh tones? And, you know what the Bible says? You got something like that? Keep it to yourself and to God and don't go against your own conscience. Happy are you if you don't condemn yourself, but your brother, let him be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
Come back tonight. We'll look at four more of these. Next week, Lord's will, we'll do the same thing Sunday morning and Sunday evening and talk about these issues with regards to how we deal with our anger. Please understand, the Bible allows God's people to be angry. We will. We'll get angry. And sometimes we fight. I don't know about you, but I've heard people say, I'm always skeptical when this couple has been married 50 years and they say we've never fought. I'm not saying I'm skeptical. I just said I've heard people say they were skeptical of such a thing. <laughs> Anger happens, and we disagree, and we fight. But in all things, we have to be like Jesus. We have to be like Jesus. Don't get historical. Listen well and then talk. Don't be hypocritical and don't be hypercritical. Keep it to yourself if it's just your opinion. Enjoy that and keep it to yourself. Not a Christian this morning become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We talked this morning about practical things. We'll do that tonight. But Christianity is this dual nature with regards to its religion. It's, it's revelation from the God of heaven that we couldn't have known. It's information revealed by him, the mystery not made known in ages past, now revealed to the apostles and prophets that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. We could never have known what God was doing were it not for revelation. But that revelation, once revealed and then understood and obeyed, must be lived out. And it is the living that is practical in its nature how we move every single day, and God is seeking to change our minds and our hearts and ultimately our actions, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, and we will be better, and those around us who interact with us will be better if we do that like Jesus. And friends, we're inviting you to come to Jesus this morning to become his child, become a member of his body, and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and change your heart and your mind. Friends, you don't know the way. Jesus knows and he is the way. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism, Romans 6, 3 through 5, so you can rise and walk in newness of life. In Ephesians 4, 17 to 23, that's the changed man who lives a changed life. He lights the world and casts an influence that helps to salt and light men's way to the Lord. Friends, if you've never done that, we invite you to do so this morning. If you are his child and you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to him, friends, every week you don't have to come down front. But if you're examining your own heart, examining your own life, and you know, I, I got to do better here. I did that. I need to stop that. Well, then repent and make things right with God. And then take up his word and follow after Jesus. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.